0: When I was in college, I was recruited to help out with my church's vacation Bible school one summer, and so that summer, the theme for VBS was the miracles of Jesus. So every morning, Monday through Friday, I would teach the third graders one of those miracles, like Jesus calming the wind and the waves. They, they love that, or Jesus feeding 5,000 people from one kid's sack lunch. That was a winner. Well, I flipped ahead in the teacher's guide and I saw that on Thursday I would be teaching them about the miracle of the transfiguration. And I I was like, oh man. So I went to the guy who was heading up the VBS and I said, Okay, here's the deal. I don't understand the transfiguration at all. So how am I gonna teach it to our third graders? It's like, okay, okay, you can teach on something else. So I did. Well, Not much has changed over the years. A true true confession time. I went back through the worship archives here, and I discovered that this is my seventh Transfiguration Sunday since coming to Savior, and I have never preached on the Transfiguration. Never have my powers of delegation been so in command. And part of the reason is, Transfiguration comes right before Lent, and there's a reason for that, and so I need to get my Ash Wednesday sermon together. But part of it is, better you than me, you know? (laughs) And one reason I think I struggle so much with the Transfiguration is that nothing in it translates directly to my experience. So I have never seen a human body light up from the inside like 2,000 LEDs i've never seen that i've never seen the shekinah the holy cloud of god's presence cover me with light i've never heard god speak in an audible voice so i keep asking so how does this apply to us have you asked that or wondered that as you've read this transfiguration well, after studying it over the last couple of weeks, I've decided that the way I've been asking, how does this apply, how do we apply this, at least the way I was asking it is not quite the right question. Here's why. Sky Jitani's, uh says that we can approach the Bible either as a manual or as a window. A manual or a window. Well, there are actually places in the Bible that reward a manual approach pretty well, like the book of Proverbs. So you go to Proverbs and you find the principles you're looking for. Like, for example, Proverbs has a great one. Don't agree to guarantee another person's debt or put up security for someone else because if you can't pay it, even the bed you sleep on will be snatched away from you. So if you were to come, for me, come to me and ask for help, to co-sign a loan, I would try to help you financially if I could, but it would be, it, I would not co-sign on your loan, okay? So I, Proverbs gives me a principle for life, so it's rewarded kind of a manual way of looking at it. But in most places, the Bible does not really work like a manual, it works much more like a window, in that it allows us to see something through it that if it, the window weren't there in the wall, we'd never see. So imagine if you would standing at the edge of the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and the wind is whistling, and you can see layers of tans and burnt oranges and ochres and purples all the way down and and if you can stand looking over the edge and trying to look all the way down, it's almost a mile down, and there at the bottom is you could. The Colorado River, which God and the Colorado River have been carving out this masterpiece for 5 million years. It's astonishing. But you and I don't go to the Grand Canyon to learn some principle to apply. We go there to be captured by the beauty of it. Now, we do walk away different people. I think better people for having visited the Grand Canyon. But it's not because of something we learned. It's because of something we saw. And so tonight, I want to invite you to come and see the grand transfiguration, and let it fill your vision. All right, Matthew 17, verse one. Jesus took Peter and the brothers James and John, and led them up a high mountain. Some people have wondered why those three. Um, I think it's because he's doing leader. He's investing in their future as leaders. He knows they're gonna carry the brunt of the leadership of the new Christian movement. But anyway, whatever the reason may be, and I read at least six different explanations this week. um, Traditionally, people think it's Mount Tabor, the mountain they went up, which is about 1,800 feet high. But uh, many scholars say it's more likely to have been Mount Hermon, which is much higher. Mount Hermon is 9,200 feet high. So even if they didn't summit. These four friends have been climbing all day. And now thousands of feet up, they can look back down into the valley below and they're exhausted. Luke tells us that Peter, James, and John fell asleep after the ardor of the climb. And when they wake up, they see this, verse two, Jesus' appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes, sunlight poured from his face. His clothes were filled with light. So let's see if we can imagine this. Pick somebody you know, maybe somebody sitting near you here tonight, and just imagine suddenly their face starts glowing so bright you can't really look at it. I mean, that would be (laughs) truly astonishing. Uh, I've never seen that, but I've one time I did have something kind of close. Karen went to a healing prayer conference. She invited me to go, but I knew I didn't need any inner healing. And uh, <laughs> after the conference, when she walked in the door, I took one look at her, and her face was, the word is radiant. And I... I didn't ask, I didn't say some nicety like, so uh, how's the conference, what'd you think of it? Or how many people were there? I just, my mouth dropped and I said, what happened to you? I was quite shaken actually. And she told me what I could already see. She had met God at that conference and she was not gonna be the same person. Well, as astonishing as it was to see Karen's face lit up that day, that was reflected light. That's like the light of the moon. But what Jesus, what's happening in his face is the light of the sun. It's coming from, not reflecting off of. Until this moment, Jesus has always looked like any other poor peasant. A baby, a little kid running around. He's got rough hands. He's come straight out of Nazareth. Um... And now all the glory in him that has been hidden is revealed. Dale Bruner says that what Jesus is within is now made visible without. So now we start to understand this is what Jesus means when he prays, now Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Now there's a picture of it. It's the same divine glory that Jesus shows to John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. John says his eyes were like flames of fire and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. So what these three disciples are seeing is how Jesus actually looks right now, just minus the scars that his body will pick up. So when you and I pray, we are praying to a being of unimaginable glory. This is, this is the Lord Jesus Christ that we call upon. For almost 4,000 years, God's people have prayed, uh, may his face shine upon you. And that's what it means. That day it did for them, and it does for us. So uh, let's just try a little experiment here. Is there a prayer, uh, something you're concerned about that you are either worrying about or praying about or both, um, that you brought with you tonight? Just not if you've got something identified, okay. Now, can you picture what was shown here? Jesus with sunlight pouring from his face and his, his clothes filled with light. Now, with that picture before you, how would you want to pray about this? What would you want to say or not say? Take a moment with that. Alright, some of you, you just need to stay with that and that's fine. <laughs> well, I'll continue on for those of you who are ready to move on. One of the challenges that you and I have as a follower of Jesus Christ is that as we go through our daily life, we start to get like kind of spiritual cataracts that build up. From the grime of relationships or TV shows or sufferings, whatever... And we no longer see Jesus as he actually is, as was revealed this day, full of glory. We can't take in that he reigns supreme. And this is exactly what happens to Peter, James, and John. They just don't get it, like what this means about Jesus. Verse 3, they realize that Moses and Elijah were also there in deep conversation with Jesus. Jesus. All right, Moses, the great rescuer of God's people, frees two million people from chattel slavery. He went up a mountain, like this one, and received God's law. Is there anybody greater than Moses? Okay. Well, the only other serious contender for goat, greatest of all time, is Elijah the prophet, who went up a mountain and called down fire from heaven. Okay. And so Peter can't really believe that he's getting to be here like with LeBron and Michael. This is the law and the prophets. This is the entire, you know, they summarize the entire Old Testament witness. Everything that their faith has taught them. And they're like, and now our rabbi gets somehow to be in the presence of these two. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is unbelievable. So he interrupts the conversation <laughs> that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are having. He interrupts it. <laughs> yeah. He broke in, Master, this is a great moment. What would you think if I built three memorials here on the mountain? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Well, part of the problem here is his mouse moving. But part of the problem, <laughs> part of the problem is he's got them in an equal lineup. Okay, And emotionally, this this sounds like, hey, what if we made T-shirts? We got to see the big three. Or maybe we could trademark three-peak. It's like three-peak, you know? While he was going on like this, babbling, a light radiant cloud enveloped them. And sounding from deep in the cloud a voice, this is my son marked by my love, focus of my delight. Listen to him. C.S. Lewis says, no one hears, who hears a God's voice mistakes it for a mere man's. You know it has authority over you. And when the disciples heard it, they fell flat on their faces, scared to death. They're like, okay, God, okay. we'll listen to your son. But which one of these three amazing people is that? And when they opened their eyes and looked around, there was Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus stands alone. He is not just favored by God, he's not just used by God. He's the Son of God. No one else has shared the Father's glory since before the world began. And I love how Jesus comes over and touches them and says, Don't be afraid. They have so much power and glory, and yet don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And now the final wonder as we're standing here marveling tonight is, what does Jesus do with all that glory? Verse 9, coming back down the mountain, Jesus swore them to secrecy. Don't breathe a word of what you've seen. After the Son of Man is raised from the dead, you are free to talk. Wait, I heard the D word in there. What does Jesus mean back from the dead? How could someone of blinding glory die? That makes no sense. But even though he has enormous, unspeakable glory, Jesus does not go to heaven. He goes back down the hill and goes to the cross. Oswald Chambers says, if Jesus had gone to heaven directly from the Mount of Transfiguration, he would have gone alone. But with people like you and me in his heart, he instead turned his back on the glory, as Chambers says, and came down. There was only one brilliant moment in the life of Jesus, and that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then he emptied himself the second time of his glory, and came down into the demon-possessed valley. He came down into the valley because that's where you live. That's where I live. And he will not stop until he's fulfilled his mission to rescue us from the sin that wraps around us like dark tentacles. He is determined to break us out of the futility of death. And if he has to die while on that mission, he will. He will even empty himself of glory in order to share it with you and me. It turns out that the transfiguration is a preview of coming attractions for Jesus and for us. Jesus says, not until I'm raised from the dead can you talk about it. So he, he will suffer and die, and we will too. Jesus will be raised from the dead, and if we're in line with him and in love with him, we will too. And Jesus will ascend to the Father in a human body shining with glory. And we will too. Here's what's hard. When you and I are in the midst of our suffering, our, our eyes filled with tears, we get blurry vision. We can't see that actually there's glory that will be ours just as it is for Jesus. Jesus. We forget, as Paul said, what this is is a light and momentary affliction compared with the eternal glory that it's achieving for us. It outweighs it completely. And we don't, we don't always feel that, and we need to know that. We need to be encouraged by that. So to help us, God in his kindness does not give us a principle. He gives us a picture, a picture of the glory of his Son And through him, a picture of what is our future because he is the one who will bring many sons and daughters to glory, as the Bible says. My friend Lee Eklov says this. He says, we're not meant to carry the weight of our cross without also seeing Christ's glory. You can't do it. So lest we walk with a limp from all that weight and become heavy-hearted Christians burdened and bent We need to see the glory of Christ. It's the blessed counterbalance. So he says, look in your prayers to Jesus shining like the sun, to Jesus alive with light, to Jesus who reigns in glory. There's nothing in this terrible world that will not bow to Jesus. There's no crime or catastrophe that will not be brought under his scepter. And there'll be a moment where he'll come over and touch you and say, don't be afraid. I told you. The Transfiguration shows us that with Jesus, our story ends in glory. A lot of you have been following as I have that as at Asbury College in Kentucky, uh, on Wednesday, February eighth, they were having a routine required chapel service, and as Tom McCall wrote in CT, after the benediction, the gospel choir began to sing a final chorus, and then something began to happen that defies easy description. Students did not leave. They were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence, and they did not wanna go. They stayed and continued to worship. They are still there. Although I see they're gonna start phasing that out through this coming week, because I think somebody's gotta go back to class. And he describes what it was like to be in the room, some students reading and reciting scripture, others standing with arms raised, several clustered in small groups praying together. A few were kneeling at the altar rail up in the front of the auditorium, some were lying prostrate, while others were talking to one another, their faces bright with joy. Many people say that in the chapel they hardly even realize how much time has elapsed. It's almost as though time and eternity blur together as heaven and earth meet. Now, here's what struck me. He says, if what we are seeing here on campus is even the faintest shadow of the reality of seeing Christ in all his glory, then what lies before us is unspeakable joy and holy love. Your future is bright with the glory of Christ. Amen.